Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today, we are continuing to talk about... Thought experiments, mostly drawn from philosophy and what we can learn from them. And so we're not looking at every single thought experiment possible. We're looking at the ones where there might be some sort of practical upshot or application. And last week we talked about, what, four of them? Or four, four families of thought experiments, and including the infamous trolley problem. So we're not going to go into trolleys again today. But uh, we left a lot off of the list that we generated. We didn't get to them last week. So we, we thought that we would do another week talking specifically about other thought experiments that either we thought were really interesting and, and had a lot of cool implications or that other people had pointed out to us in social media that they wanted us to tackle. Yeah. Uh, so we last week we went over the Ring of Gyges, the uh, Ship of Theseus, and Rocco's Basilisk. And if any of those uh, wets your whistle, then definitely go back and check those out. Yeah, you want to go back to the last show and, and listen to that. And with the Rocco's Basilisk, though, if you haven't heard of it before and you don't want to have worries about some super intelligent computer down the line making you do things and punishing you for not doing things in the present, then don't listen to that episode. Don't look it up. <laughs> right. right. Uh, this is a what ignorance is bliss argument here, right? That we're or, making, or actually. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's ignorance is is better than bliss. It's like preventative. It's a prophylactic. Ignorance in this case is not bliss. It's the opposite of misery. Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. So which which one do you want to grab and tackle first of the thought experiments that we were gonna play around with for for this episode? I think let's let's start off with something a little bit more playful, and let's do the. Uh, teletransportation paradox. Okay, yeah, this is one that comes up a lot in relation to Star Trek, right? Right. Because you have those transporters, and and you know when we watch the show, this never really occurred to me as a kid. Um, you watch the show, and these people are being whatever the analyzed and deconstructed, and then a copy of them is being produced down on the planet or something like that, and you think, well, it's the same person, but is it really the same person? Right. So I guess the logic of the, the show is that they, exactly, they analyze you atom by atom and all the positions between all those atoms and just basically dissolve you and then uh, recreate you atom by atom perfectly at some other location. And I don't know about you, but that like <laughs> at least uh, immediately gives me the feeling of, I just died, and a new me was born. You know, I never thought about it that way until somebody actually pointed it out to me. I think when I, I ran into some <clears throat> some philosophical example of of this discussion, mm -hmm. um, I was just you know when I'd watch the show, I'd be like, well, yeah, the, the Kirk just you know pops from place to place. I mean, in a way, saying beam me up, Scotty, because there's you know whoever is coming bearing down on you and they're going to shoot you. Maybe it's Klingons or uh, you know Gores and who, whoever. Um, you're you're committing suicide by getting transported, right? 
in in a yeah. sense. But but there's a perfect identity between the previous you and the new you. The only thing that's not identical is it's not exactly the same bits, the same atoms. But it's the it, same it, basic stuff, right? And we talked about this a little bit with the, the ship of Theseus beforehand. Exactly, Instead of yeah. piece by piece, we change things, which is kind of like we were talking about as even in our own bodies, we piece by piece lose ourselves and they get replaced by new copies. Um, and over time that we're not ever the same person. That this is just kind of like a rapid that it's it's all in one. Yeah, and so you know we can we can think about this by analogy to other cases where we reproduce things and we don't say it is the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. We we say it's a copy of it. So if I'm being transported in this way. It's it is me in a sense. It's me derived, you could say, but it's not me in the sense of the original me. And I guess the question that we should ask is, well, if you maintain some sort of continuity of consciousness where like your your conscious states are the same thing coming out of the other side of the replicator as they are when you're entering it, does it really matter? Does it, does it, you know, is this in the way like of like living extra, uh, of having additional lives? I mean, we could think about it in terms of like games, right? Where you're playing a video game and remember how like older games, you know, you could only like save at certain points. And if you got Mm -hmm. killed, you had to go back to your, now they call it a spawn point. I I don't remember what we called it back in the days of Atari. The beginning of the level. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So (laughs) if you, I mean, you're almost always at the beginning of whatever level you are in, if you're being replicated in that way. Right. And so once again, this comes back to a question of identity. Are yeah. you the actual physical bits of yourself or are you something more? And the, if you uh, look at you know people who talk about like substance dualism and uh, or or, you know, functionalist, if, they, if you think everything is just the physical yeah. uh, and there is no like, for example, a soul or something, then uh, then. What are, what are you? Is it just the, the patterns of your memories and the way that you interact with your memories? You know, it's interesting with the substance dualist thing. A So a substance dualist, we should say what that is, right? It's somebody who thinks that, that you know, there's there's more than one kind of uh, thing out there. We've got bodies, extended substance, and then we've got minds, and minds are not reducible to bodies, although they could be connected with them in the brain. Descartes mm. would be a prime example of a, a substance dualist, and he, he kind of thought that the joint was the pineal gland, which got bounced around by the animal spirits, almost like a joystick. Uh, very implausible view on things, but you know, he says it's quite difficult to explain the union of the, the soul and the body. But here's where it gets really interesting. So let's say we do have a replicator of this sort, or a transporter, or whatever we're mm. going to call it. And we're going to put me on the other side of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. And we overcome all the problems that are associated with faster than light travel and all, all that sort of stuff because we're doing a thought experiment. Yeah. So a substance dualist could say, well, you know, if you replicate whatever it was that that mind was connected to in a different place, that mind just kind of like zoop goes over there and latches onto it. And there's a really great... Um, 
set of sci-fi novels by Philip Jose Farmer, the Riverworld series, where exactly that thing happens. Everybody up to about like 2016 or something like that, everybody through history, um, they die and then their soul, and I forget exactly what he called the souls, I think he called them their Ka, you know, after like the Egyptian thing. These, these uh, aliens called the Ethicals who are carrying out this massive experiment, they create a world. You know, I mean, when you're doing sci-fi, you can do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. So they create a whole world, and it's, there's a giant river that flows through it. And then they have these people reincarnated in these uh, gigantic chambers and then released into the world. And it gets even better because every time that you die in that world, you are once again sort of reincarnated into uh, another another like 30-year-old version of your body. And, um, you know, you, you don't have any clothes, you don't have any stuff, but mm-hmm. you're, you're otherwise you're, you're okay. Um, so it's, you know... <laughs> so there, there are a number of video games nowadays that have exactly that model. Oh, really? Yeah, like uh, Rust is an example of... It's an open world. Uh, a lot of different play- people are all playing at the same time. You have persistence of whatever you build in that world as well as the items that you acquire in that world until you die. And then you re- uh, get reborn again, but you're, you're born naked and you got to go back and like build everything up again. I mean, Minecraft is like that, too. You know, my kids got me into playing that. If you uh, do something dumb, like, you know, fall into lava or all that, (laughs) (laughs) your stuff might still be there. Although if it falls in lava, it's pretty much done. But um, you you, you go back to, I guess, the spawn point and you've got nothing left and you got to start hitting trees again to start, you know, making yourself tools and all of that. So um, you you said this is based on a, a question of identity. Um, wow. where, where, I mean, where do you stand at? Let's say we took you and we did a Star Trek thing and we just, I don't know, we sent you down the road to Chicago and mm-hmm. you, you, you're there now. Is that still you in your view? So I guess for the most part, I, I hold a fairly functionalist view of things. Okay. Um, at least of the mind. So like the mind states are equivalent with mind states. Um, and so I would say that the the most irreducible thing that I would say from that perspective is the the pattern of my memories and however those are encoded. Right, right. As well as the the ways in which I interact with them. And so I guess you could call these functions or programs to use some other language to try to describe this the, the way that i interact with the world based on the all the the previous experience that i have yeah and so and when you, think, when you introspect you you can also access those things too right right and so i still have all those memories there and so i i guess it would be the the storage plus the program um and so as long as those things are maintained yeah. then i would i would say that identity is equivalent I don't know if it would be the same, but it would be equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I, I have kind of a pragmatic view where I'm like, ah, it doesn't really seem like that big of a problem to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so long as I still have consciousness of myself when I get out and more or less the same stuff is there, I don't even need it to be like total identity. 
I'm, I'm cool with it. You know, like if I maybe lost a memory or something, I'm probably not going to miss it that much, you know. I mean, or if like, you know, let's say a fingernail fell off or something. Now if I get transported and remember that movie, The, the, the Fly uh, mm-hmm. with Jeff Goldblum. Now if like a fly was in there and I happen to have like a fly head, okay, now, now we've got a problem. Right. Uh, but I would still say it's still me. I'm just, I'm just screwed up now. It's a, it's a messed up, you know, genetically modified me, but there's still a, there's still a me there but maybe i'm wrong about that maybe but didn't he also have start having fly cravings that's true yeah and so i would say that that is no longer him because he now has fundamentally changed why wouldn't you that... say it's him but with fly cravings added on because oh. you know? because he's still making decisions and 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 still tra- he's not totally driven by these fly cravings right we have so many cravings of ourselves, or like just our, our animal cravings. It'd be really interesting to see yeah. what a uh, a human mind would be de- uh, devoid of our body. Um, this, this so we really don't, make, no longer. This could make Star Trek much more complicated, right? Like every time <laughs> they go in the transporter, they have weird, random thoughts that now they they no longer you know they they had before, and now they no longer have. Oh, I'm cured, or they they get in, and now they've got the desire to like smear peanut butter all over their body, you know, once a day or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's like the aroma is just overwhelming. It would create so many problematic plots. You know, you could never really. I mean, the, maybe this is part of it. We do need identity. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know something I was thinking about. So imagine if you had a society in which this was like totally accepted, like the Star Trek society, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, you, know, you get out and people are like, if you were if you were having qualms and you're like, I think I died back there on the planet and now I'm not me anymore, they'd be like, ah, oh, shut up. We all do this all the time. It's not a big deal, right? Maybe right. that would make it easier to to accept that. But what if you were in a society where like they were like, you you must not do this sort of thing. It's messing with with nature or God, and and uh, if you do it, you are killing yourself. Maybe part of it, how we approach these depends on what the uh, social matrix is like. You know. Yeah. You know what? Like they might do it in the Star Trek novels, but I could totally see this type of technology um, starting a like an anti-transporter, like religious following or cult to a certain extent. Oh, because they'd be like, you're creating new human beings who didn't exist before. You're like taking the place of God or something like that. Uh, that or just the there's. In lots of religions, there's, uh, you know, anti-suicide. And so if they see this oh, as committing right. suicide, right. Then, uh, then you could see like, okay, well, you are, you are committing this sin. And Interesting. We want to stop them. But I, I want to bring this a little bit back down to earth because like, this is like really like sci-fi. We don't have this technology, <laughs> yeah. but we can actually use this to kind of investigate something a little bit more closer to home, which is the uh, idea of becoming unconscious, either through sleep or more directly through um, when we are put under through general anesthesia. Okay. So let's say you get you get put under for an operation or something, and they take some bits of you out and put some extra bits in. Um, obviously, there's a change taking place. And what is the worry there that you've gone from being conscious and having a certain configuration to, to, to another one or. Yeah. And, and you don't even need to like go under the knife. Um, cause like our brain, at least while we sleep, 
uh, stores certain uh, memories that we gathered from the day and yeah. decides to choose others to forget. And so you are fundamentally a different person because when you wake up, you have a different set of memories than when you went to bed. So there's a, there's something like a continuity problem. I yeah. guess, I mean, do you see it as a genuine problem? Because for, for no. me, I, I look at it kind of pragmatically again and say, so long as I didn't like uh, wake up with a new set of, of memories about like who I am and where I'm going and what I'm supposed to do, I'm, I'm probably okay. I guess it kind of comes back to that like um, identity question again if, if if you actually identify yourself with your memories yeah then you would want to hold on to all the memories that you could but every every day you're throwing away you some know, of your memories what so that's an interesting thing to say um why would you want to hold on to all of them i mean given the opportunity to get rid of some of them that maybe are holding you back, right? If you, if you say, I want to be a better me and I don't want to be, let's say you had some terrible trauma and now you're afraid of, I don't know, um, iPhones or, you know, microphones or ball jars or something like that. You've got the, the weird fixation. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to get rid of that? I mean, that was, it, oh, go ahead. If you had the choice of how which uh, memories to get rid of, I'd say absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, if you've seen uh, what the Eternal Sunshine of yeah, the Spotless yeah. Mind, uh, there, you know, the whole idea is to remove bad memories, but that's apparently not how our brains work. Like, if you've got something really traumatic, your brain's like, yes, I need to make sure that I know oh, that, yeah, and, yeah. and super hard codes that to make sure that you never do that again. So it might be coded redundantly, right? So that if, if you manage to get rid of it in one spot, it's already backed up over here, and then that kicks in? Or? <laughs> uh, it's more along the lines of just like the way that we usually store memories, or our brain stores our memories for us, that uh, we're not going to forget the traumatic ones just by going to sleep. Okay. Yeah, we may actually relive them in our dreams, right? I guess, yeah, I guess the... There might be ways to, um, because you move your, your short-term memories to your long-term memories while you sleep, and so unless you, you know you had something really, really traumatic that day, and you somehow figured a way to stop the transference of short-term memory to long-term memory, yeah. that would be useful. But your long-term memories would be more definitive of who you are, right, than, mm -hmm. than just what happened in the last 24 hours, wouldn't it? Right. So maybe there's a question of like wanting to curate what things yeah, that you want yeah. to make sure are in your long-term memory. What if you wanted to implant new memories, memories you didn't, uh, of things that you didn't actually experience but could imagine? I mean, we know that we can get people to believe that they saw things that they didn't see because mm -hmm. you know, witness statements are pretty unreliable and you can easily guide people into thinking things. And, uh, um, see the satanic panic of the 90s. Yeah, so maybe, I mean, maybe we could do, that was clearly a bad thing. Maybe we could do it for good, you know? Yeah. Uh, potentially. I know there are people definitely working on that. Oh, really? Yeah, like uh, implanting memories. Um, you know, uh, the research that I've seen is is rather rudimentary, rudimentary, and it's for, like, I think at most mice or rats. And so they'll <laughs> um, upload to a computer chip the solution to a maze 
and then they'll stick electrodes into the brain into their oh uh, like uh i don't know the mapping portion of the brain okay and they can make it through the the maze without ever having to uh, having gone through the maze in the first place and at a, a speed that would be indicative of someone that's already having learned right yeah. yeah okay well that's interesting but, so this is this is actually a good, I think, jumping off point to talk about um, another thought experiment that um, I mean, we, there's a couple we could do that we could talk about the flying man, which is also about consciousness. But I think the Chinese room one would be interesting to hit on because we're, you know, we're talking about the possibilities of AI, right? Mm-hmm. And how, you know, to, to go back to Descartes, when Descartes is considering how us human beings are different from animals he also brings up machines because he basically views animals as meat machines you know mm-hmm. they they they're different <clears throat> than us in that we have minds mm-hmm. and he says that the way that you can tell that we're different than machines is that we can do a wider range of stuff whereas a machine really can't it's a, it's it's pretty focused and a machine can't use um, words to signify thoughts mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the Chinese room thing hits on right right and i don't know if we want to bring in like gpt2 or is it gpt3 now which is what is it we'll get to that so that's the one of the new um ai uh models for writing text that is incredibly human like there was actually oh, a piece in the guardian a couple days ago and it says this article was written by a machine oh i uh, i think yeah there was something that was written about that a while back right yeah well? i think we actually spoke about that a while back uh, okay uh yeah but it, if you give it like a sentence it will write an entire article based on that sentence and the information it, it's, gathered it's pretty amazing just in in the last decade or so um looking at predictive text it used to be terrible, <laughs> just, oh, just just wretched. abysmally awful, yeah. And sometimes it still gets a lot of things wrong. I mean, I saw a joke the other day where somebody is like, um, autocorrect, I am never going to be using the word ducking, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> and texting right. somebody, you know. Uh, or if I am, you just, you know, I'll let you know. Um, but like, it, unless ducking uh, is followed by under. <laughs> yeah, or ducking to avoid something. Yeah. But, it's, it's really getting quite good, you know, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people who are skeptics about the capacities for um, computer generated things to be able to seem human, mm-hmm. um, they're, you know, they, they probably at some point have to say, well, this this passes something like a Turing test. And, and that's, you know, the Chinese room is connected with the Turing test. So we should probably talk about about that. Right. Because it's, it's so, a little precursor for it. Yeah. So the Turing test is um, a test created by Alan Turing, one of the fathers of modern computing, along with um, von Neumann. And um, the idea of the Turing test is if you are sitting at a terminal and you're interacting with someone else typing in that terminal, um, can you as a human determine if that uh, your interlocutor, your your conversation partner, is a human or not and the the closer you could get down to 50 50 yeah. um the the better your test is for the better your model is and the idea is that you'd introduce a computer in there and try to get the computer to mimic a human being sufficiently so that human beings would say yeah i don't know I, yeah this could be a person right 
yeah, I guess I I could have added that you're at a terminal and you're you're expecting to either be talking to a computer or a person, and you have to after the end of the conversation determine if the conversation you had was with a human or a computer. Yeah. And so we say that a, a computer would have passed the Turing test if it could fool enough people, I guess. Uh, I forget exactly what the parameters are. It's about like 50-50. If you can bring it okay. down to 50-50, um, then like you're you're at a level of you know a human. Like, okay, I, I have no idea. It sounds like a human. It talks like a human. You know, yeah, so there's a lot of interesting ramifications of this. So we'll, we'll get on those in a moment. So what is the Chinese room then? What? Uh... So the Chinese room is a thought experiment from John Sorelli, um, who um, spent a while. I believe it is you have pieces of paper uh, that are slipped under a door, and um, you and they are written in. Chinese, right? And um, the and you're not a Chinese uh, speaker. You're an English yeah. You're speaker. not a Chinese. So you're on the other side. So you are just past these pieces of paper with Chinese written on them, and you have all of the dictionaries and all the books for translating Chinese perfectly, and then understanding all the content on these actual slips of paper, and then the ability to then retranslate your answer back into perfect Chinese. That's not what Searle has. Oh, Searle, Searle says you don't, you don't have dictionaries. You have a whole set of operators that say, when you get a slip of paper like this, you ah. give them this slip of paper. So, uh, it, I mean, it would be quite interesting because what you're mimip- mim- mimicking is a native speaker, right? Right. And so, like, they say, you know, ni hao, you know, hello, and then you're supposed to say ni hao back, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if they ask for, like, you know, well, where is <laughs> – typical sort of like, where is the bathroom, you know? So the sort of stuff so, that we have in, in learning things, then you slip one and it says like ah, down the hall and and to the right, you know. Um, and if they so say, it's just a whole bunch of if then like if this, give yes, them that. Yes. Okay. And and you know this was for those who know their history of AI. This was back when expert systems were the big idea that you would exactly have like a whole list of things that would break down into complicated if thens. And the idea was that an expert is just somebody who's great at hypotheticals and Mm -hmm. can, can arrange all these things and can give you the right answer. And as it turns out, that's not how we do AI anymore, right? But no, but, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but in part because it wouldn't work. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but Searle's point was that um, the computer, and he was using this to model a computer. He was saying, "Listen, the computer doesn't have any consciousness of anything. It's just spitting stuff back out to you that you've you know uh, you've you've programmed into it to respond to these inputs, mm-hmm. and so." Talking about artificial intelligence is kind of a, a silly thing because there is no intelligence. You you could have, you know, you could have a monkey back there who hands out the papers. You could have uh, whatever you want, right? It doesn't right. it doesn't have to be a conscious human being. And so I don't know. Do you do you see do you see any value to this one in terms of our well, everyday it's life? Basically, and the idea or? of like an AI. What what makes an AI conscious? Like, what's the difference between uh, just responding in the correct order yeah. and actually, I guess, being a, a conscious agent that you're interacting with. And so I guess when you get to the point of consciousness, then you have to start thinking about, okay, what do we owe this consciousness? See, Searle thinks you're never going to have a conscious computer 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's he's using this to say all you've got are operations that are happening. And, and you know, even with the Turing test, going back to that, I mean, what if you have a really stupid human being who mm-hmm. responds in weird ways uh, that are kind of idiosyncratic? You might actually think they're a computer. You know, you'd be like, oh, this person doesn't seem to be a, um, a conscious human being, you know. Uh- yeah, and like two years ago, I believe someone made a AI for a Turing test that uh, pretended to be like a seven-year-old boy. Oh. And so because it's it's easier to model what you expect a seven-year-old boy to say and say like, I don't know, or oh, like, yeah, uh, that's stupid, adult, or whatever. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that one tricked a whole bunch of people. That guy, I think, better than 50%. It was like, yeah, that sounds exactly like a seven-year-old kid. You could also do like petulant teenager, right? Yeah. You know, that sucks. Not interested. Talk to the hand <laughs> over and over again. So there's yep. a lot of interesting, you know, ramifications to this. I mean, we live in a world, so we're talking about predictive text. Um, one of the things that we've talked about it on the show uh, a long time ago was the ELISA program, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the very early DOS-based programs, and it was supposed to imitate a psychotherapist. It would basically take what you said back to you and it would say, that's very interesting that you blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about that? And it, so it would, it would interject a few things. And, you know, if you interacted with it for more than a few minutes, you'd probably figure out that it's a computer. But um, as they become more and more sophisticated, couldn't we have AIs that are so good at imitating human beings that we, we get tricked into thinking that we're dealing with an actual person? Like maybe we have feelings towards them or um, form attachments the- or... That's the basis of the movie Her uh, getting attached to an AI. I don't AI. know if I saw that one. Tell, tell, oh. tell us about that one. Um, it's a, uh, a very advanced AI on which is portrayed as conscious in the the film. Um, and the main character um, eventually falls in love with this AI. And it doesn't have a body. And so it's just like a, a voice in a, a that's being projected through a, a small like cell phone-esque uh, device that has a camera on it. Um, and it's it's a very like slow-paced kind of melodrama uh, sci-fi film. Just thinking about what are relationships with between humans and AIs, what would yeah. that be like? This is going to um, become much, you know, much bigger issue, I think, in the, in the coming decades. But, but in the reality of it, there's um, a a uh, thing from Google, I believe it's called Google Duplex, which will book appointments for you. And so, right. and so that that is exactly the Chinese room because I don't believe that is to the point where it's conscious. Um, yeah. But it, it it has enough information and it has the voice synthesis to the point where it will call up and ask to make an appointment for a haircut or a a, a table reservation at a restaurant, and it it feel a uh, fools the vast majority of people that are taking the phone call from it. But wow. because the, the the use case is so narrow, it has the ability to uh, deal with like that narrow use case of expected responses. So we should probably expect that there's going to be a lot of similar narrow fields in which AI can start taking a lot of things over, right? Right. And so you know, for one that is very narrow, that is being totally... Um, Taking over, I think we talked about this 
at one point before as well was uh, lawyers and doing um, oh, right. uh, yeah. document review as well as a law review of, in preparation for cases. And that used to be very intensive and human work, and now we just have AIs that scrub through giant yeah. databases and pull out all the revel- relevant cases. I mean, similar things are happening with um, radiology too you know i mean yeah. you could you could still say well it's not gonna like put all the humans out of work because you still need a human to kind of oversee and make sure but it's interesting when you're when you're letting the computer do more of the work you start to kind of lose a bit of your edge when it comes to how you would do it yourself right um i think about like the music field right there's so many things where i mean you can take garage band and like make your own songs mm-hmm. but it's really garage band doing almost all of the heavy lifting for that you know so i guess you can look at technology as a replacement or is it a bicycle that just uh elevates and amplifies your own given ability i was just I was just thinking about that meme that has the person who's riding the bicycle and then sticks the, the stick in between the spokes and uh-huh. then falls down and starts yelling about everybody else being at fault. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's an equivalent of that there <laughs> when you're given but, a bicycle, you know? Well, look at like one of the biggest stars right now is uh, Billie Eilish. And uh, she did all of her stuff. Like her original album, I think, was recorded in her bedroom. Oh, really? Yeah, like bad guys everywhere, and that was like recorded with her brother in her bedroom. That's interesting because you can think about um, musicians who, in the past, like did everything. You know, mm-hmm. think about um, Trent Reznor. You know, Nine Inch Nails, the industrial stuff. Um, he, you know, he's he's doing he's just programming everything in and then singing over it. But I think he had a studio to do that in. He wasn't yeah. just like in his in his bedroom. Right. The, the pro the the level to get to prosumer is is lowering and lowering every couple so of years. What if uh, computers get assigned the tasks of doing this sort of thing? I mean, we saw with Google they had um, what was the AI thing that they had that was creating artwork? Um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, it was deep oh, something a deep right? mind. Deep mind. I was going to say deep yeah. thought, but I knew that was wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's 42. That's chess, right? Isn't it? Uh, or deep, deep thought, thought. No, I thought deep thought was from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Maybe it was, yeah. But so anyway, it, it, I mean, it creates artwork. It's pretty crappy artwork when you look mm-hmm. at it, right? But but presumably it'd get better and better. Why not? Oh. Why not with music? You know? Yeah. Um. Actually, you should really look at some of the new work that they have and they will uh you you put a monet and then you take your uh a selfie of yourself and now you are done in uh monet oh, really? style oh yeah um, interesting I, I i'll show you later i have a um a photo of myself where i took the the cover art from neuromancer actually the video game art from neuromancer <laughs> from like 1987 or something and then overlaid that on myself and so that's actually so what you're not I... just stuck with like a bunch of like filters basically like you know some of these these yeah, websites no. that say oh we'll do you like this we'll do you like that it's you could take whatever input you want and then mm-hmm. add whatever else so like you could say i want to make my cat look like um old drawings of dragons or something along those lines um it would it would still look like your cat yeah um but it, it would be in the style whatever like artistic style that you have okay um, there's other things for like trying to merge two like objects together, um, but 
that's the, the deep mind is is absolutely beautiful in my hmm. mind like at least that the whole uh family of ai you mean in terms of the, in terms of the, like the concept you're attracted to that yeah oh yeah the idea yeah uh yeah and the, okay art breeder is a website that has the ability like i've been seeing they'll um they'll take a, a photo and then they'll take like a bust of like um marcus Aurelius or seneca or caesar or like all these old busts and then yeah. it, it like takes all of the the skin complexion of the the photo and it transfers them onto the facial features of the busts wow yeah it's it's great so like even way, hair we're way beyond just like language right and past slipping little things under the door and then shooting other you know things out from under the door the inputs and, and outputs could be really anything within our our sensual range yeah or do you know if sorelli is still around sir um yeah Sorry, he's, yeah yeah he's 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 old um, yeah I, I would love to see what his new chinese room is well, he, I think he reprised the idea a couple times at different points. But, I mean, this would be something good to, to hit on very, very quickly and then move on to the next thought experiment. So I mentioned that expert systems, that's not how people think about AI anymore. Um, how is AI changed so that it wouldn't be like, you know, slipping things under the door? It's not. It's no longer the, the linear kind of inputs like that. Mm -hmm. uh, that I mean, that's neural networks, called... right? Yeah, that's what we start calling general AI because even narrow networks are usually uh, narrow use cases, and so okay. we have narrow inputs and outputs. Um, but so, you know, the people that are working on general AI are like all inputs and potentially all outputs. So general AI would be approaching the distinction that Descartes was making and saying, "Listen." computers, whatever, robots, whatever you want to have them be, they can be really, really good at this thing over here, but they can't fool a human for long outside of that context because they can't do a whole bunch of different things. They can't, like, first cook for you and then compose a sonnet and then, like, book your appointment and then get into an argue, argument with you about politics. Uh, but, but a general AI, AI maybe could do all that stuff, right? Yes. Okay. And a lot faster than you and I could do it. <laughs> I wonder. Here's the last sort of speculation. I wonder if there'd be some things. Let's say a general AI is created like that, and it can process way faster than than we humans, and we make it very intelligent. I wonder if there'd be some things where it, humans want to interact with it in a certain way, and it would be like. I'm not wasting time on that crap. You know, you people do all this, You like arguing about politics, for example. Mm -hmm. This is not going to go anywhere. I would rather spend my time doing that. I wonder if that would be a sign of intelligence. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Prioritizing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's practical realize, reasoning. Yeah, but then I'm like, okay, but now I have to deal with them. So how do I deal with them? Yeah, how do I keep them from turning me off? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you want to talk? We, what, what, yeah. What, what experiment do you want to talk about next? Yeah. Let's let's go a little bit more um, real and let's talk about the veil of ignorance. Okay. So coming from John Rawls's uh, classic work, A Theory of Justice, he proposes to us that we should imagine that we're going to create a new society and we're going to create rules sort of you know top level rules for how things are are set up and structured who gets to be uh, in charge who gets access to what and he says 
whatever you are right now, imagine yourself behind a veil of ignorance. You have zero idea about any of your characteristics. So you don't know whether you're going to be tall or short, you know, thin or fat, uh, young or old, all these sort of bodily characteristics. You also, you know, if race matters in your society, you won't know what race you're going to be identified with. You won't know what gender you are. Uh, you won't know what neighborhood you're born into. And, and we know that here in America, it really does actually matter. There's like a whole project that maps out people's uh, likely outcomes, depending on, you know, what zip code they're in, uh, which is quite understandable. So all of that stuff. And you and he goes even further. He says, you don't know whether you're going to be religious or not and what religion it would be. You don't even know what your desires will be. You don't know whether you're going to like chocolate. You don't know whether you're going to be into um you know, stuff that other people aren't like, you know, maybe being into comic books when, when comic books were frowned upon. You have no clue. And then here's the, the, the thought experiment. Well, OK, how would you set up society then? What would you what would you do? And I've actually used this a lot of times with my students. Rawls says that, you know, as rational people, we would try to minimize the danger of winding up in a bad position. And we would we would accept certain constraints on how much we might achieve. So if you think about you know a, a sort of typical American ideological system, we say, oh, high risk, high reward. You know, uh, capitalism is great because we can all be millionaires. And and we know we we that's not really how it works. But there's there's so many people who are like, I'm willing to take a chance, and I'm I'm willing to accept lots and lots of inequality and injustice. Because I'm, it might pay off well for me. And Rawls says, well, that's totally irrational. If you were really behind a veil of ignorance, you wouldn't see things that way. Because odds are if 90% of the people are going to have a terrible life, you're, you're going to be that 90%. You know? mm -hmm. So you better make their life better. And so when I, when I frame it to students, I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think? Well, how do you think students respond to it? Are they good Rawlsians? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, we got to really make this fair. And if there are going to be inequalities, there's got to be good reasons for it. And they've got to, you know, we want to have equal opportunity. Um, so I guess just assuming the age as well as the country of uh, yeah. the kids that you're getting at your classes. Um, and I'd, I'd say that their first inclination is to push against Rawls. That's the way it used to be, interestingly. Oh. Um, now, I, I think in part because we were talking about this with social contract, right? The, um, the current generation of students tend to think there isn't any social contract anymore. The American dream, you know, some people get to enjoy it, but you're not going to take us in like a bunch of suckers like you did with previous generations. Um, and, and they're probably right about that. That's probably a <laughs> rational response given how the economy works and stuff. But in the past, when I would teach like uh, millennials, mm -hmm. they would be like, I'm willing to take the big risk. I'm willing to say there's like a 5% chance that I'm going to have the big house on the hill and lots of people to boss around. Um, and, and, you know, maybe a 70% chance of being in a, in a bad position. And I'd be like, really? And they, yeah, of course, why not? You know, I'm a gambling type. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, the current generation, not quite so much. Well... I guess I feel a little bit better about the potential <laughs> future of our world if we can make it through. Well, it might be the case, though, that if things get better for them, that they like shift back into that, 
you know, mm-hmm. the American dream is is there for everybody kind of kind of idea. And this is a good question here. This is a little bit far afield. Is the American dream the old American dream? Like I'm going to have a decent job that's stable, a car, a refrigerator, TV, um, you know, satisfactory relationships with my neighbors and, you know, a modicum of, of security, or is it like I my my American dream is I have to be almost like celebrity status in terms of prestige and have tons of money and lots of income. I think people have two different American dreams out there, you know. Yeah, I think the the ideal has been moving towards this super prestigious American dream and not the like just a a good life or like a, you know, yeah, not, yeah. not a, a bad life, I guess. And so, so the American dream is like, you've made it with a capital M. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, you, you've got, you know, four cars and a, a pool and, you know, a big house. And <laughs> yeah. Who knows? You know, I'll tell you something kind of funny. My mom, um, you know, my dad died when I was 11. And so, she started dating, I think, when I was about 13 or so. And um, some of the people that she dated were pretty, you know, salt of the earth types. Some of them were kind of kind of skeevy and, 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 you know, I was glad they weren't around all that long. One of them was a really nice guy who owned a medical supply company. And I guess medical supply stuff must have been lucrative at that time. Oh, it still is. Oh, but but back then, you know, um, when maybe there must have been a huge markup even even mm-hmm. then. And this guy's hobby, uh, you know, like some people they they buy a whole bunch of Rolls Royces and stuff like that. His hobby was collecting John Deere tractors and like you know refurbishing them and painting them green. And <laughs> he took us one time to his. He had like a like a warehouse, uh-huh. and it was filled with like you know. 20 tractors and I was looking around at this stuff and I was like man I mean some people like hoard jewelry or this guy I don't know what his fixation is but I'm not getting into it you know this this does not seem like the sort of thing that you really want to hoard but it was his collection and he was super uh-huh. proud of it and you know <laughs> I guess that's one of the more benign things you could do with your wealth. oh sure right? yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah he wasn't he wasn't into like Stuff that would hurt anybody, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, I think the, there's another part of this we haven't talked about is like the access to um, potential power or position within yeah. society. Yeah. And so another uh, caveat is like, okay, um, do you build a society in which only certain people, by pure dint of their birth or whatever position that they find themselves, is the limiting factor to um, access to uh, getting certain offices like, you know, legislation or yeah, executive and, office. You know, this is a great, I mentioned zip codes, right? There is mm-hmm. a project out there and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it, it like goes down to the maps and shows you like what people's typical outcomes are as far as like income and a whole bunch of other factors for those particular, I think it's called the inequality project maybe, or something like that. And you can also do this with like school districts, you know, um, think about how um, if you go to the wrong school where class sizes are very large and, you know, there's a lot of uh, discipline problems and it's underfunded, you're probably set behind quite a bit, right? Or, or now with um, COVID and, and doing things online, if you don't have access to a laptop, you are really set behind 
quite a few people. You you can do some of your things on, on your phone, but you can't do all of them. Um, MATC, I'll mention, uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College, is, has been you know providing laptops to quite a few of their students precisely so that they don't have to try to do their schoolwork on their phone, which I think is a, a really wonderful equalizing thing that they're doing. So... You know, when we talk about access to opportunity, we often, you know, equal opportunity, people talk about like formal equality of opportunity where like, well, everybody can apply for the job. Uh, it's not closed to anybody. It's not like you're saying no Irishman can apply like they used to in, in the old days or anything like that. Um, but we're not all on the same playing field. Um, and so, you know, people, I mean, they, they've shown things like if you have, um, certain ethnic sounding names, your resume might not get looked at the way uh, other other names will. And so Rawls would say we need to like, you know, quality of opportunity needs to be at a couple of different levels. Right. You have to you have to make it substantively possible for people to have equal access. Yeah. And and so. I guess we've we've tried a couple in our own society here to try like I guess um, affirmative action is w one of them but like yeah it doesn't it doesn't hit where it could all happen and so it, like like you like try to like put your finger on what is the, the I guess the one because we always want one answer and not like multiple yeah. answers because that's that's too much <laughs> um, and they're like okay well you got to start up like at the the earliest point because that's that's when things start to deviate yeah uh but if you're starting at the earliest point well then you're like dealing with their parents and so if you're not helping their parents then you're not helping them wow uh, that's a real chicken egg thing then I yeah mean, exactly and, then, and it goes, at a certain point you better be helping dead people you know yeah and so it, it's really difficult but uh yeah it is something that we should at least we can't just throw up our hands at and say well too hard yeah and so that's actually that's where this becomes quite useful you don't have to like redesign society in some weird abstract way from the start and then like go to people with the plans and say, this is what my Rawlsian solution is. You can like get into situations and say, well, how could we make things more equal? How could we, how could we open up more opportunity? How could, you know, and, and we can use it as a device for empathy, I think too. Uh, it's very helpful to say to people, you know, who, who are dismissive of, of the challenges that other people face. You say, well, what would it be like if you grew up there? What would it be like if you lived there, if you encountered these prejudices, uh, if you had these traumas that, that you had to deal with? Fortunately, you don't. And sometimes they'll say things like, oh, well, I don't, so I don't really care. In which case, I don't know that you can do that much other than just keep going going back to them. But in a lot of cases, they will say, you know, oh, yeah, um, I, I didn't really think about that. It, it must be quite difficult. Maybe I, I'm a little bit more willing now to do something, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do we want to uh, maybe try to hit the experience machine? Yeah. You want to get into it? <laughs> yeah, well, try to. <laughs> All right, so so this comes from Robert Nozick, the sort of great opponent of John Rawls mm -hmm. in political philosophy, and it was from Anarchy, uh, Utopia. Um, what was the other part of that? Um, I'm blanking at it, but we've got to, we've got to present this fast. So there's a machine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a sci-fi scenario. Philip K. Dick has has machines like this as well, and you get into the machine, and um, you can program it to give you any experiences you want. Now, the experiences are not actually being had. It's just stuff getting pumped into your brain. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it's not experience in the true sense, but it, but it's giving you memories of, of and it's giving you inputs that at the time feel like you're doing that. Okay. So if is you're it, like, is it also blocking your outputs, so you're not physically yes. moving. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You just sit in the machine, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Maybe we could we could imagine like maybe it exercises you a little bit, so you don't turn into complete <laughs> mush or something like that. And yeah. um, you know, it, you, it doesn't all have to be like pure pleasure. You could actually program it so like there's cycles of like things are really good, and then they go bad for a while because that adds a little bit more incentive to you to like you know. Uh, feel how good the good stuff is. Uh, there's there's a game like that in, in Rick and Morty where the person loses themselves in it and um, oh, they like they uh, become a carpet salesman. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. It's like in the first season and I can't think of the name of it. But yeah. It was, it's a brilliant idea. And it's like the experience machine, right? Except yeah. it's it's only it's only at the uh, galactic equivalent of Dave and Busters. Yeah. Um, uh, blips and chips. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And and Morty loses sight of the fact that he's he's in it, and that's what happens to you. So the question that that Nozick asks is, well, so let's say you've got a machine like this. Do you get into it? And you can even program it so like it'll stop every two years and let you get out and you know decide whether you want to get back into it or recalibrate it. And he thinks that most people won't go in it. Mm-hmm. I think he's wrong about that. I mean, what yeah. do you think? <laughs> uh, considering like the the life experiences of a lot of people on this earth, I, th- I think, you know, if I could all of a sudden be like a international spy playboy or, or, you know, yeah. president of the universe or astronaut or whatever the heck you wanted, you could do anything. <laughs> you, that- you don't even have to shoot that high. It could just be like, I'm going to be financially solvent. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to have a good job where people people like me and I'm not going to get fired for some some BS reason, right? You know. Right. Um and then you know a lot of people live a life that does not have that as its current like levels and I think I don't know. I think uh Nozak has I guess a little bit of privilege here that he just doesn't know how bad it can be. I think that's right. And he, he says that the reason why people wouldn't get into the machine is what we really value is having the experiences and doing things, you know, like making, making changes and also being a certain kind of person. And then he postulates, well, wait a second, what if we had another machine that would somehow address that issue? And so he talks about like a sequence of machines. So he says that one of the things we value is like producing changes in the world, result machines, mm-hmm. or results. What if we had a machine that would produce whatever results that you wanted? Um, and that would you know, be a much bigger machine, of course. Mm-hmm. But would you then get into the two machines? You know? yeah. or what if you could get into a machine that makes you into the kind of person that you think you ought to be? Would you get into that machine? Ooh, that's interesting because people spend lots of time and money on self-help to try to make them the people that they think that they should ought to be. Yeah. Um, and would I go into that? I don't know. Is is? I mean, it doesn't that, even have to be a machine, right? It could be like if you could take a pill or if they could put a chip mm-hmm. in your head that would turn you into a, a more generous person, you know? Right. Um, man, I, I might do that. Like, I, I've got... I've worked on a lot of things with my own um, self in order mm-hmm. to try to make myself like a better version of myself. Yeah. And 
And it took a long time because it takes long times to change habits and to even know, to recognize right. what you need to work on. Right. And yeah. I don't know. That's like kind of like just flipping <laughs> a switch and all of a sudden you're better. And and if, if the end result is the exact same as the, the work that it takes to put in and then you get to start living your best life, then why not? I would say there's still like maybe you'd, you'd know that you'd, you'd taken it. Maybe what we'd have to do is then you'd, you'd have to flip the switch and then forget that you'd flip the switch, right? You'd have to have a reconstruction of like your whole uh, origin story or whatever it is of, of you as the good person. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe they can just like implant a montage of you doing all the work that it took you to do it. <laughs> yeah, you can actually have, and this is where we get to the Philip K. Dick stuff. So Philip K. Dick has a story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that, right? And so they. Well, it's the basis of uh, Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so it could be. There could be companies because Philip K. Dick always has like people, businessmen who are doing mm-hmm. things and there's companies doing things. So it, there could be a company that specialized in making training montages, but they're not for a movie. They're for you. Yeah. And it's a BS story about how you became the good person, the challenges you faced, and the insights you had and all that, all that <laughs> sort of stuff. You know, And I suppose so long as you never knew that you'd been tricked in that way and that you'd chosen to trick yourself, um, you'd probably be okay with it. The question is, would you be lacking anything because of that? Would there be anything wrong with that? And, and we can think about this from maybe the, the Matrix point of view, like I know Kung Fu, and where they just <laughs> download uh, skills into you. Yeah. Uh, and they don't, I guess, you know, who knows how it would actually react to all of a sudden just having knowledge that you didn't have a minute ago or a second ago. Like if you walked into a place and suddenly you could speak a different language and recognize people saying those things, right? Right. Yeah. But now we're talking not just in terms of like skills, but like moral capacities. Yeah. Um, I think we kind of feel like those have to be in some respect earned. Don't we? I mean, this is a big topic. I, maybe yeah. maybe this is one we actually have to table because into. we're getting close to the end of the hour. Yeah. Um, we could talk about moral luck and, you know, how we develop our moral capacities. You know, that might be uh, a good a good topic to get into. Okay. And so, um, obviously, there's no practice this week. It's the same practice as last week. Um, and so we're going to end it with a couple words from Isaac Asimov. Science fiction writers foresee the inevitable, and although problems and catastrophes may be inevitable, solutions are not. 